And all of God's people shouted and said, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, sovereign God. Before I bring the message, I want to remind you, you all received the letter from Doug Kraft, our rector's warden, about next Sunday, which is the annual meeting. I know, I know, I know, nobody likes elections. <laughs> but please come prayful and attend the annual meeting. Those of you who come to the 1030 service will sacrifice 15 minutes, so you come 15 minutes early. Those who go to the 9 o'clock service will sacrifice 15 minutes, and you come here at 1015. So just wait a little bit. Uh, get some coffee from the coffee place over there, and just uh, come and pray for about hearing what God is doing in the church, particularly as Richard presents um, the finances for this year and for next year, as well as uh, being a participant in what God is doing in this place. We have wonderful people who are going to be running for vestry, and I hope you're going to be here and uh, vote. Amen? Amen? Lord Jesus, will you let the words of my lips and the meditation of all our hearts right now be ordered by you, and therefore they will be acceptable by you in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jesus introduced the first step to happiness, the very first step to happiness, when he introduced that, he made sure that we understand that there can be no happiness or no joy, or no being congratulated in this life without that first step in the first rung of the ladder. I'm talking, of course, about the Sermon on the Mount and particularly the Beatitudes. Uh, these Beatitudes where Jesus said, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you, or translation uh, could also be congratulations to you if these Beatitudes really is like a ladder. You're climbing this ladder, and you cannot get to the top of the ladder without starting at the first rung of the ladder. You have to start at the first. In fact, the Beatitudes, is the, they, they really are a ladder. They're different steps in the ladder. You cannot reach the top without going in there the first step. The first step will determine whether you're going to reach the pinnacle or not. That first step will, will give you an understanding why you are blessed and why you are to be congratulated uh, uh, in the Christian life. And that first step is being saved. That's first step. Blessed are you. That's the first step. Uh, from that first step, you can keep on climbing. You cannot skip the first step. And that is salvation without uh, being stuck at the bottom. Uh, you cannot go to home run without going to first base. And this is really what the Beatitudes are about. They are all stepping stairs. Every, the very first step to be a blessed in the Christian life, uh, to be joyful in the Christian life, uh, to be uh, uh, excited about the Christian life has to start with the first step. Or well, somebody said, well, wait a minute, Michael, wait a minute. Salvation is the first step. But this is, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does this got to do with salvation? It has everything to do with salvation. But everything in us Everything that we have learned, everything that the world tells us, everything we've been taught 
is not to be poor in spirit. <laughs> uh, feeling helpless or hopeless or unworthy, uh, feeling totally empty is not what is going to make you a success on Wall Street. Oh, I understand that. Uh, it is self-confidence. It is uh, self-assertion. It is, it's, it's a projection of self-image. That's what's going to make you a success. No, Jesus said the real success is the first step in that ring, and that's to be poor in spirit, and that you declare that poverty publicly to God and to yourself. That's the secret of success. That's the secret of getting you to heaven. Uh, not feeling good about yourself, not feeling self-confidence, not feeling pride in yourself, and not feeling that you're the captain of your ship, and, 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 and not f- f- feeling uh, that you are in charge. That's what everybody tells us. Oh, those are the very traits that can keep you from heaven. You heard me right. This is what Jesus is saying. Listen carefully. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm only telling you what he said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is he saying? He's telling us that the very first qualification to heaven, put that letter back again, that the very first qualification to heaven is being poor in spirit. Uh, uh, Someone again might protest and say, well, well, man, heaven must be a place filled with losers. And you're exactly right. It's exactly right. Jesus said, those who lose their life for my sake are the true winners of heaven. Let me make this even clearer. When you go to one of those countries that demand you have to have a visa. Now, we are privileged in America, and I'm thankful with American passport. I can go to most countries. But there are some countries that I know and I've been to that insist that you must have a visa. You cannot get that visa at the port of entry. You have to get it several weeks in advance. You've got to go to Washington Embassy or some, you know, send somebody to get a visa stamped in your passport. If you show up without a visa, <laughs> if the country is really generous and not put you in prison, they'll put you in the first plane back home. You see, That first rung, that poverty in spirit, is your visa to heaven. (laughs) That's your stamp of approval for entry into heaven. And so the first qualification for entry into heaven is being poor in spirit. So what is that kingdom of heaven? (laughs) Kingdom is where there is a king, where there is a sovereign in control of that king, kingdom. The kingdom is not made of geography. It's not a piece of land. It's a spiritual kingdom. Kingdom is when you are under the king's rule. Kingdom is where you have left. We're all born belonging to the kingdom of Satan, every one of us, every one of us, where we left that kingdom and came into the kingdom of Jesus, where Jesus is king, a king over your life and mine. Poor in spirit means your spirit is poor, not the Holy Spirit, by the way. Some people think it's the Holy Spirit. No, no. There can nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. So your spirit is feel impoverished. Now, some people, and you hear it a lot in the media these days, I'm spiritual. They're not believers. So I'm spiritual. Let me tell you, give you a Yusuf translation of that. It means I'm superstitious. 
That's really what they mean. I believe in the spooky stuff. That's what I mean, though. I'm spiritual. But when your spirit does not feel pride in itself, only then will you know that God has got you. <laughs> only then will you know that God uh, has radically changed you. Uh, only then will you know that God is taking notice of you. Only then will you know that God has found you when you were lost. Himirat, this is important. There are a lot of people who want to get God's attention, especially if they're in trouble. They want, they want God's attention, right? You agree? Even though they have to be a believer, they want God's attention. <laughs> but the only way to get God's attention is not bragging about everything else that's in your life, <laughs> but to brag about the right thing, and that is God. Now, I can tell you in all honesty, I only brag, brag about a God without whom I am helpless. Uh, I brag about the God without whom I am hopeless. I brag about a God without whom I'm desperate. I brag about a God without whom I can do nothing. I brag about a God whose mercy is my only hope. And without that mercy, I'm dead in the water. And when the moment I declare my spiritual bankruptcy, the moment I declare that I am poor in spirit, you know what God does? It's a use of translation. He looks at those angels and said, boys, get ready. Go down and minister to Michael. He just qualified for salvation. But then poverty in spirit continues throughout the Christian life. It's not something you get so they get saved. Once you get saved, you start bragging about who you are or what you're doing for God. No, that poverty in spirit continues throughout your Christian life. So the question is, how do I know that I am in a state of hunger for righteousness? Answer, by how sensitive I am to sin in my life, <laughs> but how broken I feel about that sin. Now, beloved, listen to me. Only God in heaven knows of how constantly I feel my inadequacy, my unworthiness, my helplessness. And I sometimes when I hear people, you know, talk about what God used me to accomplish as, as I did in this tour around the world, I, I, I'm saying under my breath, if only you knew. If only you knew. Sometimes I don't say it under my breath. I say it publicly. If only you knew my desperation for God and my utter dependence on God and my helplessness without God. I came across a, a quote several years ago that is going to surprise, the author is going to surprise all of you, not just some of you, all of you. Let me read it first. Through my years in active public life and through observing many kinds of people, I have found that the strongest, the wisest, and the most competent and reliable man is the one who first admits his own inadequacy. Contradicting though it may sound, he is strong because he's humble. He's always 
He always remembers that, that man is a creation of God. No rule of life is more basic. He continues, when one leans on his own understanding, lives his own, on his own strength, boast of his own accomplishments, and claim he is his own master, the result is untold suffering. Even though his position is maintained and his material wealth increases, success turns quickly into failure when God is forgotten. There is no peace of mind, no personal satisfaction, and no experience of true joy. The trust, to trust in the Lord with all your heart is the mark of strength. It is the only path to true fulfillment. I'm not going to ask you to even guess who this is, because you never will. It is not C.S. Lewis, not an evangelical pastor, not a theologian. It was J. Edgar Hoover, the former head of the FBI. I told you it will surprise you. So please, 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 do not misunderstand me. I am not talking about false humility, because there is such thing as false humility. I see it in Christians all the time. It grieves me. I'm not talking about false humility. False humility often denies or ignores or undermines God's gifts and talents. You know what, you know what I'm talking about now. I'm talking about having received these gifts and these talents from the hand of God, I acknowledge God as the source of all gifts, the source of all talents, that, that, uh, that I'm dependent on God, on the use of these gifts, that I am daily, diligently use these gifts and talents so that He gets all the glory. I often think if I'm going to have a brain surgery, I do not want a surgeon with false humility. Because a surgeon with false humility says, oh, Michael, I'm not really sure, I, I, and I'm just, I, I'm just humble, and, 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 and I don't know, I, I don't feel good about what I'm doing, and I, I feel inadequate, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've got news for you, I'm going to run out of that hospital. <laughs> I don't want a surgeon with false humility. I want a surgeon who would say to me, God has gifted me. He's equipped me by His grace, and yet I am dependent on Him as I operate on you. I said, go for it, buddy. D.L. Moody used to say, listen carefully. D.L. Moody used to say these, these are powerful words. He said, true humility attracts. Lack of humility subtracts, and false humility detracts. I love that. And here, my beloved friends, in this true humility, not false humility, true humility, you find our friend David in 2 Samuel. Jonathan lived in Australia for too long. He says, 2 Samuel. Oh, the British and the Australians say 2 Corinthians. Uh, 2 Samuel, chapter 7. That's how we say it here. You've forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> Second Samuel chapter 7. I hope you have it open in front of you because that 
is one of the most powerful chapters in the whole of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, I'm going to show you that it, that chapter can easily be a seven-week discipleship course. And those of you Bible teachers and Bible preachers, you, you, you will see this when I show you when I come to it. Second Samuel chapter 7. Here we are going to see true humility in action. A lot of people talk about humility, but we're going to see how it works in action, actually in real life. Here is David, is not spoiled by his success. Here is not, he's not giddy with his position. He, David is not uh, swollen uh, by victory that he had received. Here we see David not for uh, forgetting the Lord in the midst of his prosperity. No, instead we see his poverty of spirit continues on. That is true poverty in spirit. This is truly a man who's Poverty in spirit is on display for all of us to see. How? By having the glory of God as his number one concern. By having the honor of the Lord as his number one priority. As having the worship of the true God as his life's goal. David's most desperate longing here is for the kingdom of God, not for the kingdom of David. Are you with me? Say amen. The kingdom of God, not the kingdom of David. And here's how it happened. David could not stand the fact that he is living in the lap of luxury in a beautiful house that was, 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 was built with cedar. Here he is living in luxury. And the Ark of the Covenant, which Jonathan talked about in the last message, the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. He couldn't stand it. Someone said there are thousands of professing Christians who think more about the welfare of their pets than they do about the work of God. I did not say that. I wish I did. It was a great British theologian by the name of Arthur pink. But I want to say amen belongs here. Look at verse 2, 2 Samuel 7. David said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in the place of cedar, and the ark of the covenant remains in a tent. That, my beloved friends, is a man's whose heart after God, which is the theme of this whole series. His heart is after God. This is a man who is blessed by being poor in spirit. Someone would say, well, Michael, you said this is the first step. This is the entry level. Yes, but I also said that has to stay with you for the rest of your life. Poverty of spirit just, just happen the moment you come to Jesus and the rest of your life you're going to live kind of your, you're on your own steam, as it were. No. What I want to show you here this morning, please, please listen, please, <laughs> that David's true poverty in spirit, especially when God did not give him what he wanted the most. Now, beloved, listen to me. There is a one, it's one thing to be humbled before God, to be overwhelmed by God answering your prayer. And to be still overwhelmed when God doesn't answer your prayer. Are you with me? Sometimes we feel so overwhelmed when God blesses us. 
when God pours His blessings on us, and we feel humble, we feel unworthy of all this enormous blessing, but it's a whole different ball game when God says no to you, and you still pray, and you're humble, and you're broken before God in the same way as you did before. It is when God says to you, no thanks, it's not you. It tells a great deal about the character of that individual, what he does, what she does, when God says no to you. It's a whole different ballgame. We all love the blessing of God. We all want the blessing of God. We all want God to answer our prayers. In 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 3. By the way, 1 Chronicles Chronicle 17 and 2 Samuel 7 are mirror passages of the Bible. They're reporting the same thing. One has more details about one thing or the other. But in 1 Chronicles 17.3, God sent Nathan the prophet. He said, go and tell David. Thus says the Lord. This is not just uh, take it or leave it. This is not just a principle. This is not. Thus says the Lord. You are not the one to build a house for me. My beloved, my beloved, my beloved friends, please don't miss this. Bear with me just for one moment. Bear with me for just one moment. There is nothing more revealing of a person's true relationship with God, true relationship with the Lord, than how he or she reacts when God says, no. Perhaps you prayed for some physical need, and God says, no, or at least not yet. What is the nature of your relationship with the Lord then? Perhaps you lost a business deal that you earnestly wanted and you earnestly prayed for. That business deal fell apart. What is your spiritual temperature after that happens? Perhaps you applied to attend a certain college and and the doors did not open for you. Perhaps you prayed about a certain position in a certain company and the door was shut. How are you relating to the Lord when that happens? Will you continue spiritually walk with the Lord after he says no to you? Perhaps you want to marry a certain person. And that relationship did not work out. How is your walk with God? You see, in both these passages, 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17, the Bible says that after David heard this disappointing news, he prayed. He prayed. Can you say that with me? He prayed. Come on. He prayed. Did you get this? Did you get this? I have known people, and I'm going to confess to you in a moment. I have known people, when God did not answer their prayer, they were out. I know the disappointment of God saying no. And there are times when I did not react right 
I did not react like David. Second Samuel seven eighteen. King David sat before the Lord. That is a sitting or a posture of prayer. He was sitting in a posture of prayer. He prayed. He just heard the disappointing news. The Bible said he prayed. As I already told you, I'm going to examine that prayer in a moment because the sevenfold prayer can truly be a course in discipleship. It's of uttermost importance. We're going to see it in a minute. But I want you to think with me, just for a moment, think with me. Please, beloved friends, think with me. This man, David, has been denied the fulfillment of his life's vision. He had just been denied the fulfillment of his dream. He has just been denied the, f- the fulfillment of his longing desire. But instead of sulking, which he did before, by the way, he did before, he sulked before. <laughs> I've sulked many times. Instead of sulking, he prayed. He prayed. Lord, if I cannot fulfill this vision of building a house for worship, I'm going to give my all, and in fact, he gave his entire net worth to others who can build it. Lord, even though I'm not going to have the joy and the pleasure of serving you in this way, I'm going to stand behind those who do. Lord, even though I might not have the joy of preaching, I'm going to stand behind those who do. Lord, even though I cannot serve you as I want to, I'll stand behind those who do. That's the prayer. And my beloved, this is true humility. This is true humility. This is true poverty of spirit. Now I come to the prayer. But don't panic. It's not going to do the details. I'm going to give you the highlight. I know some of you are looking look at your watches. The sevenfold prayer of David. After disappointment. This is a model prayer for everyone, without exception, you should learn from when you receive disappointing news. When you don't receive answers to prayer. I, am pray, I prayed actually for weeks that God will imprint those words, not just in our brains, but in our hearts and our lives, that we would learn how to act after a disappointment. No wonder God said of this man, with all of his failures, with all of his faults, with all of his sins, God said, this man is after my heart. No wonder. Here's the sevenfold prayer. Let it be a training grad for all of us who really want to exhibit poverty in spirit and humility. 
First of all, of the sevenfold prayers, David attributed everything to God's grace. David attributed everything to God's grace. It's on the screen so you can write it down and don't forget it. All seven of them will be on the screen in a minute. Verse 18, who are my sovereign Lord and what is my family that you have brought us thus far? As I said in the beginning, a genuine belief of one's unworthiness is the secret of true humility. The New Testament says that the reason salvation is by grace alone is so that no one can brag or take credit for it. That's the reason. Think with me, please. Think with me. Because you know people and I know people. We know folks who, who, who really give themselves credit for their salvation. It was me. I chose the Lord. I am the one. I am the decision. I am and I am and I am. And think about those folks. Think with me. I've met them all over the world. Think of what they're going to do when they get to heaven. What are they going to say to Jesus? Lord, I am glad I'm here because I'm much smarter than my neighbor. I am much smarter than anybody. I chose you, Lord. I made a decision to follow you. Lord, I am here because of what I've done for you. Lord, I, 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 I know you said to, to your disciples that you did not choose me. I chose you. Ah, but I chose you. Think about this. Think long and hard. <laughs> Dear God, have mercy. Beloved, when I get to heaven, I'm going to fall on my face before God. I'm going to say, Lord, you did it all. Lord, you paid it all. Lord, it is your pure grace that brought me here. Lord, I am not worthy, nor I deserve to be here, but you did it. Lord, you sustained me, and you have persevered with me through my entire Christian life. When I failed and failed, you picked me up. When I sinned and repented, you forgave me and strengthened me. When I've lost the joy of my salvation, you restored it to me. Thank you, Lord. Obviously, some people here still think they're going to make it to heaven because of the decision they made. I can tell by just looking at you. You need to repent of that. Beloved, the reason so many professing Christians are trotting around like peacocks, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Feeling righteous. Because they do not comprehend God's grace. They really don't. And the reason they don't comprehend God's grace is because they do not comprehend the enormity of their sinfulness. Can I get an amen? amen? David recognized his unworthiness and his nothingness, but God's everythingness. I made this one. Just I made a word up. Secondly, David 
apprehended the greatness of God. Verse 22. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you. Beloved, there are many who preach the love of God, the love of God, the love of God, the love of God, and they never preach on the justice of God, and they make it look like God is kind of an irresponsible grandfather who lets his grandkids do everything they want. Thank God I'm not. Love my grandkids, but I'll talk straight to them. They never preach the justice of God. They never preach the holiness of God. They never preach the purity of God. On the other hand, there are people who explain grace as if there's something due to them. You know, that God, God owes them grace. In this age of entitlement, we brought that entitlement to the church and to our doctrine and theology as if God owes us grace. No. We're entitled to God. No, we're not. They fail to comprehend the greatness and the majesty and the awe of God. They fail to be awestruck at His righteousness. Here's David in the midst of hearing no from the lips of God. Was struck with awe before the holiness of God. Thirdly, David affirms the goodness of God. Look at verse 23. And who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem a people to himself. Now, beloved, the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ to us by his precious blood that was shed on Calvary demands the loudest praise. Demands the loudest praise. Not sitting on your hand and doing nothing for him. The salvation that Jesus gave us, full and free, elicit our giving him of everything. The grace of God compels us with the deepest of gratitude. And therefore, everything we do after salvation is out of gratitude. Not duty, no, gratitude, thanksgiving. The self-centered worship that we see in many evangelical churches today is alien to the truly poor in spirit person. Alien. Somebody said not long ago, he said, you know, if you listen to the hymns of the old where this is you, 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 talking about God, and now it says me, I, I, me, oh, what I've done for you, God. Oh, give me a break. Thank God we don't do that here. Amen. Fourth, of the sevenfold prayer that David affirmed God's covenant. Verse 24, you have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. Here's the one thing about God that you can take to the bank. I know the bank is closed today, but take it to the bank tomorrow. You can take this to the bank. When he makes a covenant, he will keep that covenant. God is not sitting in heaven with a pencil 
and an eraser at the end of that pencil, and when you repent, he writes your name in the book of life. Then you, when you mess up, he turns it over and erases it. Then when you repent again, he writes it again. And then when you mess up, he erases it. No, your name, if you came to Christ surrendering to him, is written in the book of life with the blood of Jesus. God is a faithful God. That means he will always, always, always keep his side of the bargain. It's us who don't. We don't. And you know what? We bring pain upon ourselves when we do not keep our side of the covenant. We really do. Because we are prone to be covenant breakers. It's one of my favorite hymns. One of my favorite hymns, particularly when you get to the, we're going to sing it at the end of the sermon. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. He to rescue me from danger. Interpose. His precious blood. In fact, the writer of this hymn, who was prone to wander away from the Lord, he really did. And that's why he, he wrote that, that stanza last. And, and, and he was conscious of this and conscious of this. And every time he comes back, pours his heart to God, God receives him. One time he was sitting in one of those horse and buggy car, car and, and, and the lady in front of him, she was humming this song. And then she engaged him in a conversation. She said to him, do you know this song? He said, ma'am, I'm the miserable soul that wrote that song. <laughs> prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. David attributed it all to the grace of God. David apprehended the greatness of God. David affirmed the goodness of God. David affirmed the covenant of God. And fifthly, David asserting the promises of God. Look at verse 25. And now, Lord God, Keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. And you know, of course, what he's talking about, right? Jesus, the son of David, who will sit on the throne forever. That was a prophecy, a messianic prophecy. When God said to David, and that's why I was reading just the other day in my Bible devotion, and the blind man said, son of David. He knew this is the son of David, of whom the Old Testament prophesied. Son of David, King Jesus. And David here is doing two things simultaneously. Look at them with me. He is taking hold of the divine promise and believing it. And secondly, he is pleading for God to fulfill that promise in the future. David believed the Word of God in the book of Numbers, chapter 23, verse 19, where it says, God is not a man that he should lie, or son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak does, and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill it? And the answer is, absolutely not. Please, you must understand biblical faith. The word faith gets bandied about sometimes, drive me nuts. You know, faith based this and faith this and faith this. But biblical faith, you must understand, is a gift of God. It's a gift of God. 
Because I know that my God does not only promise or is a promising God, but he's also a performing God. Because I know that my God is not only a faithful in calling me, but he's also faithful in keeping me. My God is not only a covenant-making God, but he's also a covenant-keeping God. My God is a God who's not only a convicting God, but he's a forgiving God. My God is not only a calling God, but he is a receiving God. My God is not only an initiating God, but he is a compelling and fulfilling God. Amen. Amen. And that is why the Scriptures says that he who began a good work in you is able to bring it to completion. One of my favorite verses. Absolute confidence in the sovereignty of God. He who began a good work in you and you and you and you is able. David attributed it all to the grace of God. David apprehended the greatness of God. David affirmed the goodness of God. David affirmed the covenant of God. David asserted the promise of God. Six, David announced the glory of God. Look at verses 26 and 27. No wonder when the disciples said to Jesus, teach us how to pray. And he gave them a pattern. There are some traditions and some churches, they rattle it through, kind of in you know, a part of the Mass or part of the prayer of our Father and run through it. Now, that's not, it's not a magic prayer. He said, this is the pattern that you follow. And you know what he did with that pattern? He begins with the glory of God and he ends with the glory of God. That's how our prayer should be. Begins with the glory of God, ends with the glory of God. Our Father who are in heaven... Hallowed be the glory to your name. And ends with, to you the glory. To you the glory. Thine is the glory. The glory of Jesus, if it's not at the forefront of our minds, then the other glory is in the front, is occupying that front section. If the glory of Jesus is not at the forefront of any church, something else is at the forefront. The seventh and the final of the sevenfold prayer of David, after disappointment, David pays tribute to the faithfulness of God. Look at verses 28 and 29. David's life with all of its ups and downs. And beloved, listen, there is, I am so grateful that we can read these great men of God, great women of God, and we can see their clay feet, and we can see that they were not perfect. That's why we don't worship them, and we don't venerate them. We venerate the God of grace who overruled in their ups and their downs. David, with his ups and downs, failure and sin and greatness of writing songs and psalms, he never lost sight, never lost sight of the faithfulness of God. Now, beloved, our God is as good as His Word. Can I get an amen? amen. Say it with me. Our God is as good. Our God is faithful to His Word. So let me conclude with this question. Let me ask you, take it personally. Please take this question pers personally. 
How do you pray when God says no? How do you pray when God says no? Or maybe not yet. Think long and hard about this. It's very important. It's very important. I know what my longing is. I cannot stand here and say I've done it all the time. No, no, no. I would be lying to you, and I'm not going to do that. But I know my longing. My longing is that I'll pray like David. I want to always praise God for his grace. I want to always praise God for his greatness. I always want to praise God, affirm his goodness. I always want to affirm the covenant with God. I always want to assert the promise of God. I always want to announce the glory of God in every action and every thought. I always want to pay tribute to the faithfulness of God. May God grant me and you this desire of being like David. Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me? Maybe you have been disappointed. And because of that disappointment with God, you have developed this kind of cold love toward God, that kind of intellectual and pseudo-intellectual love, and, and no longer your heart warms when you pray. Today, God can change that. Maybe you have faced disappointment. Maybe you are facing disappointment. Let your sevenfold prayer be the testimony to the greatness of God so that He and He alone can truly say to you, Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, totally, utterly dependent on me. A loving Father, we thank you that your word is true. From Genesis to maps, we thank you. It's true. And Father, as we see ourselves in that word, I pray in the name of Jesus and through his power that you strengthen each of us. Certainly, your servant, the preacher, above all, Strengthen us. To be strong and to stand on the rock regardless of the circumstances. For we pray this in that matchless mighty name. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, the son of David. Amen. And amen. And amen. Let's stand and sing together.